0: So tonight we want to talk a little bit about, and we'll see how many we get through, the communicable attributes of God. And these are attributes that we share with God, but there's always like a a caveat with that. And what I mean by we share them with God, because if you look at some of these attributes, love, grace, mercy, goodness, uh, wrath, whatever, um, those are attributes that we have in a small degree as well, right? We can be loving, we can be gracious, we can be merciful, uh, we can have wrath, we can, uh, we're called to be holy. But even when we say we share attributes with God, I think I shared it like last week, it's like God is perfect in all of his attributes and we are not, right? So when we say God is loving, and actually the Bible says God is love, um, I, there's many, many times when I am not loving, right? So we, we share these, they're, they're similar attributes, but God is, and we'll get to it, he's perfect in all of his attributes. So that's, that's even the difference for tonight as well. So what I, I want to do is just we're going to go one at a time through these, and we'll see how far we get. Um, there's going to be a lot of scripture that we'll read together. And then at any point, if there's questions or comments or you want to add something, just feel free to speak up and um, Yeah, I might repeat it, because I noticed last week, you can hear me on the video, and then it's like, any comments, and I'm like, ah, I didn't think of you guys, so I might repeat it, and the reason I'm repeating it is for the the recording. So um, the first attribute that we want to talk about is holiness. So when you think of holiness, um, what comes to mind? Set apart, apart, yeah. Okay. Without
1: sin.
0: Without sin, yeah. Any like images come to mind or things come to mind when you think of holiness? Uh Uh-huh. The Ark of the Covenant. Ooh, the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, so holiness, all correct, Um, holiness simply means that God is set apart. He is unique. Um, If you wanted to have a definition, the holiness of God means that he is separated from sin and he is devoted to seeking his own honor. Um, So he is like exactly what you guys said, set apart, without sin, the example of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Holiness comes from, it's a Hebrew word, um, kadosh, uh, which literally means something that's marked off. Um, Kadosh means it's marked off to to not be used for common, ordinary use. So even if you think of in the Old Testament lots of times, uh, so for instance, the temple and when they would be talking about even the tabernacle, and like the utensils that they would use to like do things and, and offer sacrifices. It would say like, these things are holy. And you're like, well, like, a, like the utensils in the, the temple aren't without sin. They're inanimate objects. But the word holy literally means, okay, we're, we're marking this thing off. It's not for common, ordinary use. It's special. It's set apart. Um, it's different. From everything else, that's literally what holy means—to mark it off. Um, so when we talk about God's holiness, um, that's that's what we mean—that God is uh, separate from sin. He is unique. He's set apart. He's different, right? So here's some scripture, and you can—I tried to put them in order. They might be in order, but here's some examples in the Old Testament: Exodus fifteen eleven. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Um, 1 Samuel 2.2, there is no one like the Lord, right? There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. So that idea of being set apart, unique, um, marked off in Samuel, right? There's nobody like God. He's unique. He's set apart. There's none beside him. Um, Isaiah 57.15 For thus says the one who is high and lifted up who inhabits eternity whose name is holy I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I love that because Isaiah is saying God who inhabits eternity his name is holy. That's how you know, set apart and marked off he is. His very name is holy. Um, And then Isaiah 6, uh, if you remember, Isaiah has that vision of um, the throne room. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. These are angels. Each had six wings with two, he covered his face, with two, he covered his, his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So you have like an image, right, of God being so holy that these angels are there covering their faces, covering their feet, flying. And their job is to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Uh, it's very similar to Revelation when you see around the, the throne. The living creatures are saying, holy, holy, holy. It actually says they never cease saying that. Can you imagine? For like all eternity, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So that's, that's our God. He is holy and set apart. Um, the other aspect of God's holiness, so if we think about, okay, so he's, he's unique. He's set apart from sin. There's, there's no sin in him. And so that means that God is absolute uh, absolutely pure and good. He is untouched and unstained from evil. All right? If you look around the world, every part of our world is touched by and stained by <coughs> sin and evil. But God's holiness means that He is um, untouched by that. He is absolutely pure and good. A um, couple of passages that talk about that: um, Habakkuk one thirteen you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Now, that's interesting because Habakkuk is actually complaining about God, right? But he says, you who have pure eyes, like, and, and the prophet is saying, like, you, you can't even look at wrong, right? I think um, Habakkuk is slightly exaggerating, right? It's not as if God's like, yeah, no, I can't. But he's saying God is so holy, it's like he can't even look at wrong. Um, James 1.13 says, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, right? Because he is holy, he is fully good, he cannot be tempted with evil. Um, even Job 34.12, of a truth God will not do wickedly, And the Almighty will not pervert justice. Um, So God will not do wicked things. He will not pervert justice. Why? Because he's holy. He's altogether good. And um, no wicked or, or sinfulness can be in him. I don't know, thoughts or things you want to add to that? No, that's yeah. I've never heard before that anybody would say I'm being tempted by God. Is that a literal thing where if people did something wrong, they blame it on God? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That
1: seems like a new level of dumb.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it talks about in the Bible that God does test people. So I think there's a, yeah, we can sometimes confuse the two. But the idea of God tempting us would be more like, hey, here's sin, you want it, come get it. Like, God, of course, would never do that. But God would test us, right? Um, put trials in our way to help us grow. So, yeah. So it's interesting when you think about God's holiness, and then what, when we talk about God's glory, they're actually connected. So any ideas of how you would think, what is God's glory, in connection to God's holiness. Any thoughts or ideas? Didn't you
1: just say holiness was the search for his glory?
0: Like um, I don't know if it's the search for. It, it was in the definition there. The definition, yeah, was. yep. That um, God is devoted to seeking his own honor. Yeah. Um, I remember um, John Piper described it this way. He said, God's glory is his holiness on display. So if you think about lots of times in the Bible, it talks about, okay, and then the glory of the Lord filled the temple, for instance. Or if you think about um, at Mount Sinai, when when all the people of Israel are there, and what does it say? There's like thick clouds and darkness and thunder and lightning. And what was it? It was the glory of God. So it's like God's glory is is him showing us his holiness, how set apart he is, how without sin he is, how um, unique he is. And that's why it's, it's often in images and things that we're like, what? Like, this is so bizarre a lot of times, right? When you think about, okay, God shows up and it's his glory is thunder and lightning and thick clouds and, and any other examples, right? Of God's glory that you can think of from Scripture. On the day of the
2: Lord when
0: Christ returns. Yeah. Some of those um, descriptions, right, in Revelation and in Thessalonians, the sound of trump the blast of trumpets and all yeah, totally. Yep, bright light. I, I often think of the burning bush because it's this glory, like, okay, it's a tree that's on fire that isn't being consumed. And what does God say to Moses? Take your sandals off. You're on holy ground, right? So his gl- God's showing Moses his glory in some small, unique way, and, it, and it's, his glory is showing Moses how holy he is, um, Like his, yeah. Yeah.
2: Ocean, his holiness, would be destroyed because we couldn't stand in the face of that.
0: Totally. Yep. Yeah. You even think of when the glory, the glory of God would come, and it, it's you know pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, and it came and rested on the tabernacle, and then on the temple, and all of the things the priests had to do. Okay, you got to put on the right clothes. You got to do all these washing rituals and this and that why because god is so holy to go into the the his presence to offer sacrifices it was like they could die right because if they had any kind of uncleanness or and and so his glory is, is is like his holiness on display for us um i always found that the 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 best definition because i was always like what's the difference between god's glory and his holiness it's like are they just the same thing he's amazing he's awesome and it was like no it's uh, his holiness is his set apartness and his glory is showing us look how unique and set apart i am now sorry did someone say something over there no okay um, now why is this a communicable attribute so one that we share with god because I don't really feel set apart and without sin (laughs) and unique, but I think the Bible, like as believers, um, the reason that we share this attribute to a certain extent is because God is holy, and then what does he do? He calls his followers to be holy as well, set apart, right? Marked off, um, different, unique, so even in the Old Testament, right, in, in Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, God says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Um, and then in Leviticus 19, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Um, And then you get to the New Testament, Matthew 5, 48. Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect, and it's the same kind of idea, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what do you think that looks like in the life of a believer, right? If God says, okay, I'm holy and I want you to be holy, what would that look like in uh, an everyday person's life, (laughs) Anybody? Maybe, like, not going out and partying with your coworkers, or something like that. Okay. Yeah. So kind of being, trying to be removed from sin. Yeah. Yeah, that's our sanctification, right? As we follow Jesus, we're being more and more conformed to his image, right? So what it can't mean is, okay, God is without sin, and now you must never sin because that's impossible, (laughs) right? But what it is is, okay, now you as a follower of Jesus, you've been set apart from the rest of the world. Like the world does things this way, and as a believer, it's like God now, you think about like all the, the utensils and the table in the temple. It was just kind of like, we're gonna take that and now it's set apart and it's different. And so that's, I think, part of what us being holy means. It's like, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna look like the world. Now God's gonna take us and save us and set us apart for his purposes now, right? So, and there is an aspect as, as you follow Jesus, sin does lose its hold on you, and you should have, see victory over sin, but until the day you die, you will never be um, perfect. That happens when you die, right? Or Jesus returns. Yeah, so it's interesting that um, God is presented as holy, and then, you know, he saves us, and then he says, okay, now you guys be holy too, right? You're my image bearers. Uh, Now you be holy. You be set apart from the rest of the world. Um, just like um, God is set apart and unique. So it's an interesting calling that we have, right, to be different from the rest of the world. Um, any last thoughts on holiness? And then we're going to move on. It's not unlike how we were set apart from the rest of creation at the beginning when we were created in his image. Okay. Mm-hmm. Prior to bearing the image would then be bearing this as set, being set apart from the rest of the Totally. Yeah, if you read creation... Humanity is very unique and different from the rest of creation. Totally, yeah. Yep. Okay, good thoughts. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna just keep going here. We'll keep plowing through, and I'm gonna do this. All right. Um, number two, righteousness slash justice. Now, you might be thinking, well, those are. Two different things, so why are you just trying to cram more into? <laughs> um, in English, righteousness and justice, we use two different words, um, but in the Greek and in the Hebrew, the language that the Bible was written in, um, those are the same word. There's one word for righteousness and justice, it's the same word. Um, in Greek, I gotta make sure I write this right. In Greek, so that would be the New Testament. Uh, Dikeos, I'm going to say. Sure. And then in Hebrew, so the Old Testament, it's sedek, um, And it's actually a group of words. There's like different um, like variations, but it's kind of an umbrella word, essentially. And um, there is no, there's no different word for righteousness and justice. It's either dikeos or sedek. Um, and and this would be the definition of it. God always acts in accordance with what is right, and is Himself the standard of what is right. So, right, God, everything that God does is right, and then God actually is is the standard uh, of what is right. And so, the reason the Old Test like the in the ancient language, the reason they went together is because righteousness is essentially God's holiness applied to his relationships and to other beings, right? His righteousness is how he applies his holiness to human beings, to nations, to things like that, and his justice is like his official righteousness. Does that make sense? Like His, his justice is, here is my requirements, right, that all of you have to adhere to. That's why we say God is just, right? Because he has his standards, which are always right, and then we are nations and people are held to those standards. Um, I'll I'll give you some examples. So Deuteronomy 32, 4, the rock, this is speaking about God, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. So it's interesting, when you think about that, you could also, all his ways are righteousness. Right, in our language, it would help to think you could, they're interchangeable. They use them in the same way. Um, a God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. Um, Isaiah 45, 19, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. right? That's God saying uh, he's the standard for righteousness, and then he's declaring what is right right. Um, even the Bible talks about the law of God is perfect like he is. So Psalm nineteen eight, The precepts of the Lord are right. So the laws, the commands of God are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So it's like God is perfect and the standard for right, and then he gave us His word, his law, his commands, and the psalmist says, well, this is perfect too. And it's, if you want to know, okay, what is right? Well, go to God's commands, go to his precepts, and then you'll know this is right and this is wrong, right? And then his actions are always right. Like Genesis 18, 25, if you remember, um, Abraham is talking to God and Abraham says, far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Right, if you remember, Abraham's talking to God and saying, okay, if there's ten people in Sodom, would you spare them? Yes. If there's five people, would you spare them? And then he says, like, you're not going to just destroy a city with righteous people in it. Like, you're the God who always does what is right, right? Um, Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Um, Jeremiah 9, 24, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Um, so when we think about God's justice, um, right, his righteousness applied, right, the standard. Here's my just, I, here, God is the standard of right? And then his justice is his, him holding all of his creation to his standard. Uh, and oftentimes he's pictured as a judge. That's the picture, right? It's like a courtroom. God is in the judge chair. Is that what it's called? <laughs> whatever. Um, <laughs> I think it's, what? what is that called? Is, does it have a special name? I'm in my whatever, the judge chair, sure. Um, but that's kind of the, the picture that, right, God is the judge uh, and he is, he's, uh administering justice so even if you think about the very first commandment um, this is God the judge giving a good and right command that his creation is supposed to follow right Genesis two seventeen, God says but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die right and so it's interesting because lots of times we're like well why did God put the tree there why did he, well, it's just gonna cause more issues. Why did he do, and really, okay, God is perfectly right, and he's perfectly just, so it doesn't matter why he put the tree there. Everything he does is right, and so we just have to. The picture is that we would go, God is so good, and he is so right, and he's perfectly just. We should just obey this commandment, and the, the commandment could have been anything, like don't touch the pig over there, or whatever, right? And if that's God's choice, um, to make that kind of commandment, uh, he's right, and he's just, and, and humanity would go, should have gone, yes, okay, we'll obey because of who you are. Um, Deuteronomy 7 says, uh, talking about God, repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He'll repay him to his face. So there's an example of God's justice, right? So someone who I, I hate God to his face Um, God in his justice would say, um, I'm not going to let you get away with that, right? Because he's just. um, And there has to be consequences because he's the righteous judge. Um, Psalm 58 says, Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. And those are all like rhetorical questions being like, yes, of course. Of course there is a God who judges the earth. Um, You think about in the New Testament, Romans 6 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So that's the idea that our sin um, we will be held accountable for. Why? Because God is just. He can't just be like, you know what, don't worry about it. Uh, Then he wouldn't be a good judge, right? Um, Even in Romans 12 19, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Says the Lord, right? God being the judge. We don't, we don't have to seek vengeance. We just kind of go, okay, God is the one who's going to judge um, everyone. And then you do get to Revelation. I don't think I uh, put that one in there, but you get to Revelation and you see um, this throne room scene, right? It's like uh, Revelation 20, and then I saw a great white throne. That's the word, the judge's throne, the chair. Same idea. And him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life and the dead were judged. So there's a picture of God being the good judge by what was written in the books, according to what they'd done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead. They were judged according to what they had done. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So it's this picture of at the end of, the age, God sits on His throne, and then He, in perfectness perfection, um, judges everyone because He's a good judge. And the thing to remember is that God, you know, we we sometimes have human examples of judges that are corrupt or judges that um, aren't fair or that take bribes or whatever, right? We have examples of that, but God always administers his law fairly he never shows favoritism or partiality Um, he is he is perfectly righteous and just Um, and whatever conforms to God's character is that what is right he's the final standard of what's right right so if we looked at the world and said "Well, okay is that right or wrong we would go to scripture and go, well, does it line up with God's perfect character? Because if it does, then it is right. Right? He's the, the standard of, of what's right. I just talked for a lot. Thoughts? Questions? How do you feel about a God that is a judge? I think our culture lots of times doesn't like the picture of God um, as a judge judging us, right? I don't know. Do, do, do any of you feel those kind of like, uh, I don't like God judging me.
1: Yeah, but you kind of end up with a uh, free pass card when you can, uh, accept Jesus. Like, there's a, a free pass card? <laughs> it, it, it's a deliberate get, like...
0: Get her out sort of
1: thing. Otherwise we'd all be screwed.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's why the cross is this perfect example of God's justice and then his mercy towards us because someone had to pay for sin. Right? God would not if 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 Jesus didn't come and at the end of the age we all stood before God and He said, You know what? Don't worry about it we would go, you are a terrible judge. Like, no, there, sin and rebellion and wickedness, there has to be payment for it, right? Because uh, that would be justice. Um, and we all cry out for justice, right? We want a judge who will, who will administer justice. When we see unjust things happening, we go, wait, that's not right. And so for God to be this just God is actually a good thing. And then you're right, he he. Uh, Jesus comes and willingly goes to the cross and God's justice is satisfied, right? And and when we trust in him, it's like, okay, yeah, his payment has been paid. Her payment's been paid. Yeah, Jesus paid in full. Um, So he's not letting us off the hook, but it's like someone else paid your debt for you, um, which is pretty remarkable. (laughs) Other thoughts? Thoughts? we don't want to judge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so, I don't see, it's this dichotomy that we have in our culture of we want to judge, but yet we don't want to have a God who judges. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I think we're fine, I've noticed this about myself, we're fine if God judges all of you, but me, well, I'm not that bad. Right? We do that. Or we, like, we categorize. I remember talking with someone, oh, this is like, years ago, you know? But, like, okay, so my sin, I I haven't done that many bad things. Like, I lied, maybe, I stole once, or whatever it is, right? I'm not as bad as the guy that, like, murders someone, right? But we do that. It's like, well, it it seems you can, God can judge all you guys. But then when the light, the spotlights turned on me, it's like, well, that's not fair. I don't like that, right? We totally do that. Um, It was interesting, I read uh, a book, uh, um, I can't remember the title of it, but anyways, they did surveys from different cultures all over the world, and he said the only culture in the world, by and large, that has an issue with God being a God of justice, and you're held accountable, and he'll judge you, is North America, by and large. He said every other culture in the world is like, we want a God of justice, because if you know, I'm in Africa and that tribe comes and kills my whole family. I want a God who will one day put everything right and they will be held accountable. He said, it was fascinating going by and large, it's North Americans who are like, I don't like that God judges me. And he said, the rest of the world is like, I want a God of justice and judgment because I want the world to be made right and people to be held accountable. I, just, I found that pretty interesting that it might be a Western problem where we're, I don't like God's judgment. Um, Okay. 7.30. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Moving on. God's faithfulness slash truthfulness. And the reason I put these two together is because they do kind of go hand in hand, um, if we would talk about God's truthfulness means that God, all of his knowledge and all of his words are true, and he's the final standard of truth. Um, we talked a bit about that on Sunday, like, right, right what is truth? Well, well, God is the final standard of truth, and then I think God's faithfulness is God proving himself true over time, right? If God is, the, he is everything he says is true, then God's faithfulness is him proving himself true over history that he keeps all his promises that he'll do exactly what he says he will do so that's why we kind of put them um, together they kind of go hand in hand Um, the bible talks about there being one true god and then lots and lots of false gods or fake gods Um, jeremiah 10 says but the lord is the true god He is the living God and the everlasting King and his wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Um, John 17, uh, Jesus says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Um, even in 1 John 5, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. So the Bible presents this idea of there's one true God, and then there's all sorts of false gods that people worship who aren't really gods at all. Um, and so there's not, there's not many gods and God, you know, Yahweh is kind of the top one. Um, the Bible says there's actually only one true God and then a bunch of fakes, essentially. Um, so that's really important, right, that we're not um, hoping that God's true. It's like the scripture confirms over and over, no, he is the only true God. Um, and then part of that is that God is um, reliable and faithful in all of his words, what he, what he speaks to us. We don't have to be concerned that God is going to lie or he's being deceptive or he's being manipulative. It's actually interesting when you read the, the history of, of other nations and their gods, whether it's like ancient Greek mythology or um, whatever, ancient cultures, their view of gods, oftentimes their gods would trick people and they would be deceptive, and they would do things to manipulate people. And so you would never know, like, okay, if I'm worshiping, uh, whatever, Baal, is he, a- is he actually, you know, going to do good by me, or is he, is he trying to trick me, and stuff like that. And so God, uh, he, because he is faithful and true, um, we don't have to worry that, okay, God's tricking me, God's being deceptive. Um, the Bible, a few places, says that, right? Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie, so we don't have to worry when we read, okay, God said this. Is it true? Um, we don't have to worry about that. God uh, does not lie. Um, 2 Samuel 7, and now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Um, Proverbs 30 verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take rec- refuge um, in him. And then Jesus in John 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Um, I find that super comforting that when we go to the Bible, we don't have to go, well, is it true? Um, I mean, lots of people wrestle with that. Is this actually true? Um, But God himself and others in the scriptures say, well, every word of God proves true. Um, His word is truth. Everything God says is true. So we we don't have to come to the Bible wondering, is this a lie? Is this true? No, everything that God says is true. Um, and then God's faithfulness is, like I said, God proving himself true over time, that he keeps all of his promises. Um, so a few examples, 1 Thessalonians five twenty four, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. So it's that, okay, there's a promise from God in scripture. Is God going to do it? Well, it says that he is faithful. He will surely do it. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, nine: God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, even if you read, and I don't think I put it down here, but 2 Corinthians 1.18-22, it says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in, in Jesus. That is why through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. So I, I like that Paul's saying, with God it's not well yes and no, right? It's uh, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. He's He's faithful. Um, Even 2 Timothy 2, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. And then lastly, 1 Peter 4, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. I don't know, thoughts uh, or maybe even examples of where you've seen God's faithfulness, Him proving Himself true um, over time.
3: was going to happen did actually happen
0: yeah totally Totally. yeah even for this week like for sundays we're looking at john 19 the whole crucifixion account um and as i'm reading it it's something like i think there's a dozen old testament prophecies that all in the crucifixion of jesus he's crucified between between two criminals that was prophesied a, a thousand years before Um, they cast lots for his clothes that was prophesied a thousand years before it happened Um, and on and on and on I can't remember all of them but it's like every promise in the old testament everything that God said would happen happened perfectly so I think that's one yeah one example when you read scripture and you go man look at God saying all of these things that will happen and then you as you read scripture it's like he, he didn't make one lie. They all happened. This is unbelievable. I, like even today as I was studying it, it was just a good reminder. Man, thing after thing after thing that happened to Jesus that was all prophesied thousands of years before. It was it's quite amazing. That proves God's faithfulness, right? He's, he doesn't lie. He's, everything he says is true. Other thoughts?
1: From like God's promises in His Word, also like looking mm-hmm. six talks about like He who began a good work in you will be sure to carry it on to completion. And yes, that faithfulness in our own personal lives. Like not only is He faithful to the entire world, but also personally He's faithful to be like, hey, like, what are you doing over there? Like, come back. And yes. <laughs> yeah. Totally.
0: So. Yeah. That's good. I think too, it's it's so reassuring, especially when you go through trial and pain to go, okay, God, why is this happening? To cling to his faithfulness. Um, right? That, okay, uh, Romans talks about this is for um, our good and for his glory. Okay, God said that. He's tr- Every word that he says is true. I might not see as I'm in the muck now how this is for my good <laughs> and for his glory, but God is faithful, right? And so you just kind of I find it something to to cling to, especially when you go through trial and pain, to go, okay, God is faithful. He will not lie. He tells the truth, and he's proven himself true. I can actually trust him, right? So it's a practical attribute of God that we actually cling to when we go through pain. It's um, that he is truthful and he is faithful to us. Um, I have found that super comforting. Any other thoughts? Because we don't have time for them. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, let's talk about God's love, which is the one that we all like, yes, I love talking about God's love. Um, and I think actually sometimes we, we, oh, we emphasize God's love over and above all of his other attributes and we may not say it, but I think sometimes we think, well, God's love kind of trumps all the other ones, which is not true. Um, but we, we, see, we focus on the ones that we like, right? We're like, God's wrath? Ew, duh, that's, no, 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 no. Um, so God's love, um, God's love is his eternal giving or sharing of himself. It means that God eternally gives of himself to others. Um, I mean, the classic, the passage that I think best talks about that is in 1 John, and I, I forgot to put it in your, your notes there, but if you have a Bible, 1 John 4, like there's eight verses that talk about God's love. So verse, uh, 1 John 4, starting in verse eight. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us of His Spirit And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So like twice, John says God is love. It's like God, so essential to God's character, to his being is his love for us, that it, it's like John can say, um, it's like he is love. Um, now, it, the, the opposite is not true. Love is not God, which sometimes we're like, okay, well, God, if God is love, then love is God. But that's not, it doesn't go that, that way. And then you see, too, like uh, verse 9, how do we know that God loves us? Right, if you were to ask that question, well, we know that God loves us because of, of Jesus. It's God's love for us was wasn't just, well, I know that He loves me because it's this like butterfly feeling that I have. No, His love for us is tangible. He actually He did something. Right, He sent His Son, and God was the one who actually loved us first. Right, I love that the the Scriptures say that it wasn't that we loved God. So then, God said, "Okay, they love me, so then I will love them back." Um, we're naturally enemies of God; um, we're naturally haters of God, and so God is the one who, like, initiated in this relationship. He loved us first, and therefore, then, right we we love Him. Um, uh, parts of God's love is that He just has great concern for our welfare. Um, John three sixteen. Right, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Um, Even in the Old Testament, a lot of times I think we view, okay, in the New Testament, it's like God switched from being angry and now he loves everybody. right? Um, Which is just not true. If you read the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 7, um, God speaking to Israel says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord's brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Right, so even in the Old Testament, why did God save Israel from Egypt? Because he loved them. He set his love on them. And it wasn't because they loved him it wasn't because they were flashy and the biggest nation Um, he says you were the fewest of all people but it's solely because of who God is that he loved uh, the nation of Israel Um, even you can we could just spend so much time there's examples in Matthew 6 there's examples in Matthew 10 of God's care for us right Uh, even just daily provision right he says you know the birds don't worry about what they're going to eat why do you guys worry God will take care of you and God knows all the hairs on your head and God will give you clothing and, and on and on all of the ex- examples of God's love for us um, in action um, even Matthew five forty-five, Jesus says for he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So God, God's love for everyone means that even people who willingly go, I hate God, he still makes the rain fall on that farmer's field. God doesn't just say, where, who, where are all the Christian farmers? I'm going to make it rain on their fields and no one else gets rain. No, he, just, he gives rain to the just and the unjust. And the sun rises for evil people and good people. Like It's just because God loves humanity. Um, even Acts 14, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So there's all these ways that God shows his love for us, that we have food to eat, right, that the rain comes, that the sun rises. But like First John says, the, the primary way that we know God loves us is Because he gave, literally gave himself for us. Like he sent his son, Jesus. Um, Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, And then even Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right, so that is the primary. How do we know that God loves us? Well, it's the cross, right? It's what Jesus did. That is the primary way that we know that, that shows that God loves us. I don't know, I'd be interested to hear thoughts, questions, comments. This one's just kind of an easy, like, yeah, God loves us. That's amazing, right? Like you said, it's <laughs> not
4: a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not. It's not. It's
0: true. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's this objective thing, right? Because it's not just like, well, how do, how do you know God loves you? Well, I just feel like he loves me. Well, it's way deeper than that, right? We just, how do I know God loves me? Jesus died on a cross for me. Like, there's proof that he actually... Loves us, totally. Yeah. Oh, boy. We're going to tackle that in a different week. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, th- there are passages where, okay, God chooses one and doesn't choose the other. How can he love everybody? Totally. Uh, but we are not going to tackle that tonight. <laughs> that is going to be a different conversation for sure. Okay, maybe we'll just keep, we'll keep moving. Um, Okay, God's grace. Uh, Yeah, I might, I might skip a few as we go along to, yeah, we'll see. Um, God's grace. God's grace, um, if you wanted to give a definition, is God's grace is the fact that he doesn't deal with people on the basis of worth or merit but solely on the basis of his goodness and generosity. So God's grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. So if you think about it that way. So what do we deserve? We deserve hell and punishment and death. And God's grace is giving us what we don't deserve, which is just unmerited favor. And it's really important that I think it's this idea of um, not on the basis of merit because then it wouldn't be grace. If God looked at humanity and said, okay, Corlin's doing pretty good and one's doing, okay, I'll show grace to them because they're kind of, they're doing good, then it's not grace anymore because you are now earning favor, right? God's grace is that it's not based on our merit. It's solely based on who God is, his goodness and his generosity. So I, I love that definition. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve, which is his favor. Um, bunch of passages that talk about this, um, so I'll just read some of them. Um, Exodus thirty-three nineteen. This is when um, Moses asks to see God, and God says, "Okay, well, I'll we'll put you in this this rock, and I'll I'll cover you, and then I'll make my goodness pass in front of you." And then he, he says his name, right? And he says, uh, in Exodus thirty-three, "I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will will proclaim before you my name, the Lord." And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Um, And then in, in, in Exodus 34 6, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Right? So God, when he's like saying what his name is, it's like part of it, right? The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious. Um, We'll skip down like Ephesians 1. It says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of all our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us, In all wisdom and insight. So Paul is saying that one of the reasons that God sent his son to die for us is that it would lead to the praise of God's glorious grace. So it's meant that when people look at what Jesus did for his enemies, that we would go, man, God's grace is unbelievable that he would do this for us, right? That we would we would praise his glorious grace. Um, even in Ephesians 2, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Um, When you read the Titus 1, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then in Titus 3, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So God, just really simply, God's grace is him, By no act of us or any merit in us, him showing us favor, right? Giving us favor when we don't deserve favor. That's his grace towards us. And I love that scripture over and over says, like, it's not by works, just to make sure, right? Ephesians, not by works. Titus, it's not by works. Because I think all, the majority of our human interactions are usually based on some kind of, work, right? If, if, if I'm going to be shown favor, it's usually because I have to earn it, right? At my job or whatever. Um, and so I love that scripture just hammers this into us. God's grace is not earned. It is not based on worth or merit. Um, it's based on just because God is so good that he shows us favor. Thoughts, questions, comments?
2: Love and grace are easy ones to cover, so to speak. But do you think that in our culture, we ever struggle with God's grace towards other people? Like, the story that comes to mind is Jonah, where at the end, after Nineveh has repented and God relents from destroying them, uh, and Jonah cries out, basically, like, basically he's like, kill me. I knew that you were <laughs> yeah, <and> grace <gracious> totally. <laughs> and merciful, steadfast in love, slow to anger. Yeah. Do you think that's something that we struggle with? And if so, why has not like,
0: Yeah, I think it is, Um, because like I said, it's, I I think that we all have this, I think it's a sinful thing, but we all have this innate um, drive that I have to earn something, like whether it's with your parents, this view that you have to earn love from your parents, or you have to earn favor from your parents, or at your job, or, and then that transfers into our relationship with God, where it's like, I must, I have to earn something. So I think sometimes, yeah, for us to go, okay, the salvation is a free gift uh, based on God's grace. I think there are people who are like, it can't be that. It can't be. I have to earn something. And then you're right. Then to look at someone else who you're like, that guy gets the same grace that I do. (laughs) Right. I think there can be a, a wrestling with that. And you're right, Jonah's a great example. Like, he should have been like, wow, praise God that he showed grace and mercy to Nineveh. But he's like, I knew that you were going to do that. Yeah, totally. Because he wanted his, uh, Israel's enemies to be wiped out. And God showed them grace. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I don't know. Other, maybe I'm wrong. Other people? No? No one struggles with God's grace. It hasn't become personal,
1: thing yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, why do you think, like, we, so fall, we fall into legalism all the time? Even I, like, we all do. Yes, by grace you've been saved, through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then I still fall into the, like, hey, God, I'm doing pretty good. You must be pretty proud of me. And kind of, like, oh, yeah, earning some favor and merit. And it's, like, no. Um, it's by grace, right? So I think that's why Scripture hammers it home so often, um, totally yeah right because even paul talks about that right because of god's grace should we just keep on sinning he's like no of course not you've been set free from that so yes that's a good point Yeah. So this
4: guy was, he survived one of Auschwitz or something like that. Yes. Right. Camps in World War II. A Jewish fellow. And when they were doing the war trials afterwards, he walked into a courtroom to testify against the commander of the camp that he'd been in. And the story goes that when he walked in and looked that man in the face, he fell on his face and, and just broke down. He couldn't speak. And afterwards he said it was because when he looked at that man, he realized that but for the grace of God, he would have been just like that man. He saw his own sin reflected in that man's actions. Wow. So he, I doubt that guy had a problem with God displaying grace towards him. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, totally. And I don't think we would either if we understood our own sinfulness.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point.
4: Do you grace is one of the things that
3: sets Christianity apart from the other religions so heavily? Yes. Other religions are like, hey, if you do really good, maybe you can get in. Yep. And Christianity's like, you can't do anything good enough. And with, without, our, without God's grace, there's no way we
0: get to heaven. Mm-hmm. That's a really good observation. You're right. Um, er, every other religion and worldview is works-based. You've got to somehow earn enough, do enough, give enough, serve enough. And a lot of them are, you you don't even know. Maybe at the end of your life, God will go, "Mm, okay, yeah, or "Mm, no. Um, And Christianity, you're right. I mean, Jesus is the only one who's, uh, it's solely by his grace, totally. (laughs) Um, We'll talk about mercy because grace and mercy kind of go together because if grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, um, mercy could be defined as God not giving us what we do deserve. So if you, you get what I'm saying, so grace is God saying, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve, which is favor and, and love and all the things. And mercy is God saying, I'm not going to give you what you do deserve, which is death, I guess, <laughs> Um, so mercy could be classified as God's tender-hearted, loving compassion for his people. Um, it is his goodness towards those in misery and distress, right? So they do kind of go hand in hand, which is why so often in Scripture, and no, I shouldn't say every time, but many times when it talks about God's grace, it's like coupled with God is gracious and merciful. They, all, they almost always go together, it seems like, right? Even it, the ones that we read, right? Right. Um, In Exodus 33, I will be gracious to whom I'm gracious. I'll show mercy to whom I show mercy. The Lord, um, merciful and gracious. So they kind of go together. Um, So a couple of uh, passages. I'm going to skip a few just for sake of time, right? But Psalm 51.1, the psalmist is saying, have mercy on me, God, right? According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my Transgression. So it's the psalmist kind of clinging to God's mercy that he won't give me what I deserve, right? Please, God, show mercy to me. Um, and oftentimes, too, mercy and grace go together, but lots of times mercy and compassion, right? The Lord, the Lord. Uh, uh, what was that one that we just read? Uh, when God says, the Lord, the Lord. Um, oh, whatever, uh, I think I may have written down. Um, Psalm 103, 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And then 2 Corinthians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, right? So I find, I mean, we don't have to beat a dead horse, but um, mercy is simply God. Uh, showing compassion on us by not giving us the things that we actually deserve, right? We don't deserve God's kindness and love and we don't earn it, right? God's grace is just freely given to us and God's mercy is him going, I'm not going to give you what you actually deserve just because of who I am. Um, And we see God's grace and mercy best displayed again in the cross of Christ. We see God's grace and mercy at the same time when we look at Jesus. I find it so interesting that, um, that all of God's attributes uh, pretty much are best seen in the person and the work of Jesus. Like you think about where do we best see God's love and his grace and his mercy and his goodness and his patience and even his wrath. Um, it's in the cross. That's, it's like that is the ultimate pointer to God's attributes, I think. Um, I don't know. Thoughts on mercy or grace and mercy together? Or Okay. Um, I'm going to skip a few. <laughs> grace, mercy. Because um, I want to get into some of the ones that are a little bit like Okay, yeah, um, right, goodness, God's good, patience, God's patience, <laughs> no, um, and I'm going to put my, my notes online too, so if you want to go back and read through notes on those ones, but let's, get, let's skip ahead to God's jealousy, because this is an attribute of God that I think sometimes it's, it's confusing, because jealousy in our minds is a bad thing, um, but, but God's jealousy Um, would mean that God continually seeks to protect his own honor and glory. God is um, jealous for his own glory and honor. Um, So just a few passages. Exodus 34, 14, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Isn't that interesting? You're like, okay, God's name, one of God's names is Jealous And he's a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4.24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Um, Psalm 78.58, For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. Um, Nahum 1.2, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Right? We love the God, the loved one. Um, so God, God's jealousy means he is seeking to protect his own glory and honor. When, uh, when we talk about, okay, what is God's ultimate aim in history? A lot of times people say, well, God's ultimate aim is to love us or God's ultimate aim Uh, whatever, but throughout Scripture we see from cover to cover God's ultimate aim throughout all of human history, including the cross, including our lives, is that he would be made glorious. That's why God created everything. That's why we exist. That's why he sent his son. And that doesn't mean the other things aren't true. Yes, God, obviously God does it because he loves us and because He is gracious and merciful. But you just read Scripture after Scripture where God says, Um, I'm doing this so that my name will be great. A great example is the 10 plagues when uh, God's speaking with Moses and he says, I'm gonna harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let you go so that my name will be great among the nations. So God's saying, I wanna display my glory and my power by doing all of these these 10 plagues. So God says, I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna harden Pharaoh's heart so that people will look at that story and go, man, God is glorious and and great. So his jealousy is a jealousy for his own name, for his own glory. But I don't know, before I get into why that's actually a good thing, uh, how does that sit with you if if you're just kind of like, okay, God's jealous for his own glory? Doesn't that sound like kind of conceited? No, it's.
1: are just going to sit back and be cool with it. You're going to push up. You're going to make some noise. You're going to okay. try and, you know, get what credit belongs to you. Okay. I think
3: sometimes I associate jealousy with covetousness. Yeah, that, right. And that is displayed as simple in the Bible, so that kind of almost seems confusing sometimes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think here's the difference. For us as broken human beings, jealousy is wrong. Because if I see Corland, whatever, has a nice car, and I'm like, which you don't. <laughs> but I'm like, let's just say he did. And I'm jealous. You're right. It's, all, it's, it's almost parallel to all. I'm coveting what you have. I'm jealous that you have that, and I don't have that. And a lot of times, jealousy is because, well, I deserve that. Um, so when, when someone, like if we were to say, okay, Andrew is jealous for his own glory and honor, we'd be like, ugh, what a jerk, right? Because, why? Because I am a broken, sinful human being, that I don't deserve glory and honor. But when it's God, and here's why it's actually right for God to do this, it is actually right for God to be jealous for his own honor and glory, because of everything else that's true about him. If God really is perfect in every single attribute, if he is holy, without sin, flawless, um, perfect, then we should, well of course, God should be jealous for his own glory because he deserves it, he's worthy of it. He's the only one that can handle that glory and honor and praise. and I think we struggle with even the wording of it because jealousy is seen as such a bad thing um, humanly speaking. But even if you think about jealousy and pride and other things that when human beings operate like that, it's just kind of like, ugh, it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth, is that it's actually a theological reason. The reason that we don't like people who are jealous and prideful is because they they are claiming honor that doesn't belong to them. When we go man, they're just full of themselves. Why does that rub us the wrong way? Because only God is actually worthy of all honor, all glory, all power, all praise. For, for God to be jealous for his own name and his own honor, it actually makes sense because he is perfect, right? If he wasn't perfect, then yeah, we, we would go, well, we can't trust him because his, he's not faithful. He's not true. Um, he's kind of shady, so for him to say, well, I'm jealous for my own glory, we would go, well, we can't trust him, because look at all of his other bad attributes. Does that kind of make sense? That the reason that God can say that he's jealous for his own glory is because he's perfect, and he should be jealous. We should be jealous for God's glory, like on his behalf. Every, we, all we want is God to receive glory, I don't know, thoughts, or does that still not? <laughs> I have a question. Yeah. Um, but then the word jealous, is it a different context than we think of the word jealous? Like, if you go hmm. back to what the original word is, it still like a Greek I can look it up real fast. <laughs> Should have had that. There's, there's one
4: God is not bearing any
0: rival. Okay. Which kind of
4: fits in with what you're saying, but just a different way of saying it, maybe. Say, mm-hmm. yeah, even if you think of the Ten
2: Commandments, the first commandments uh, in chapter 20 of Exodus are, you, uh, "You shall have no other God before Me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. Right? Like, there's no other God that you should have other than Me, expressing His jealousy of mm-hmm. that. the the praise that we would give him for
0: that position? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Hebrew word is kana, So Q-A and A. And so I'm just trying to do a quick scan on this thing. Um, so it says the, the translation is to be jealous, to be zealous, to be zealous for. Um, Ardour? Is that, I don't know how to, st- ardor? A-R-D-O-U-R? Yeah, well, like, yeah ardor. <laughs> it just shows you how. Um, it says, but the, in these lexicons, these Greek and Hebrew lexicons, it says, in each case, ardor is stress. The ardor of jealousy. The ardor of zeal. Ardent love. Um, I don't know if that helps, but. Yeah, that's, that. Mhm. Because that makes sense because zealous means you're like passionate and yeah, like, yep. so
1: that's a totally different I think, you mm-hmm. meaning than we
0: think yeah. jealous. I think jealous, what well, we know of it is that it relates <laughs> to insecurity, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Well, I'm gonna make a rule no <laughs> other gods, yes, that's that's a great. Illustration. <laughs> don't worship Baal, worship me. <laughs> yes. So zealous so jealous and zealous going together makes a lot more sense that God is just passionate about his own glory because he is perfect. Um that's that's what we think
4: of when we think of jealousy. We're wanting something that we don't have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That he have exactly. Yeah. And
0: so when we think of it that way too, like this one, the definition the of God is not bearing any rival. The reason
3: why He doesn't, why He's jealous of any rival, is because every rival is lacking where He is not lacking. Mm-hmm. So
4: it's actually, I think, jealousy born of His
2: love. Mm.
4: Sort of like with our children. If we see our children making poor
0: choices, it, it stirs our emotions because we see yep
4: that's God's jealousy. He sees us
0: worshiping a false god. He wants so much better for us than this this emotion of jealousy. That mm-hmm. because of that. Yeah. That is. Yep. Yeah. That is a great point. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, the way that we use words, because yeah, jealousy has such a negative, and rightly so, a negative connotation in our English language, but. The idea of God being jealous and zealous for his own glory is actually a, a good thing. It would be, it, God wouldn't be worth worshiping and following if he wasn't the, ulti- the ultimate perfection. If he was like, well, no, there's something more glorious than me, then I'd be like, well, I'm going to worship that thing then. Like, I don't want to worship. If you're not perfect and, and you're, you're not seeking your own glory because you are so perfect, then he wouldn't be worth worshiping, I I think, in my opinion. So when I read passages like that where it's like your God's a consuming fire, jealous God, don't worship other gods, God's name is jealous, it's just kind of like, well, yeah, because he is so amazing. Of course he should be passionate and zealous for his own glory. Um, Yeah. Okay, um, 820, let's talk about wrath because that's... I try to do like the more, I don't know, tough ones. Um, so God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. Um, and lots of passages in the Bible talk about God's wrath. And this is one that, yeah, can also rub us the right, the, the right way. Nope. Uh, the wrong way. Because we, sometimes I think we go, okay, well, wrath but love. How do wrath and love go together? If God is love, how can he be just wrathful and hate sin? Um, and so a lot of times we don't like talking about this one. But here's some, some passages. Exodus 32, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation Of you, so this is when the Israelites made the golden calf when Moses was gone for like eight seconds. Um, (laughs) I'm just kidding, but it was like he's gone. We need gods to lead us, and they made a golden calf. And so God says, like these people are stiff-necked. I'm gonna wipe them out, right? Let leave me alone, Moses, so that my wrath can burn hot against the Israelites. And if you know the story, God ends up showing mercy but a bunch of people still died uh, because of their sin. Um, Deuteronomy 9, it says, uh, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you've been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. Um, and, and we could go on and on through all the prophets, right? All the minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all the minor prophets, it's like this warning of God's wrath. Guys, if you don't repent and turn back, God's going to judge you, right? He's going to pour out his wrath on you. Why? Because he hates sin. Um, And and then it's not just an Old Testament thing. Um, Even in the New Testament, see, again, a lot of times we think, well, okay, God of wrath, Old Testament. God of love, New Testament. Um, I've actually had conversations with people who are like, God kind of seems bipolar, doesn't he? That it's like Old Testament, he's, bomb oh, I'm going to send wrath and destroy you. And then Jesus is like, love. Um, but that's not the case, right? We've seen that um, God's love is displayed all throughout the Old Testament, as well as his wrath. And then even in the New Testament, you get passages like, you know, John 3:36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Um, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then even um, Colossians 3, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming And then 1 Thessalonians 1.10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Um, So, I mean, we could just go on and on. Lots of passages that talk about God's uh, anger and hatred of sin, of evil, of wickedness. Um, I don't know, before we get into why that's actually a good thing, I don't know. Have you wrestled with this, God's wrath, his anger towards sin? Is this something that, I don't know, bothers you that you go, or like how do you put these two things together? I would just love to hear. Have you wrestled with this before? Well, the wrath kind of goes with his justice, right? Like mm-hmm. if he
3: just God, he has to punish the people who deserve it. Yep. And if he didn't, he wouldn't be a just God. Yeah. Yeah.
4: I think we almost have a twisted view
1: of, for instance, jealousy and wrath because we're sinful and our world's sinful. And if we think of wrath and jealousy, it's a different wrath or a different jealousy hmm. than God's jealousy or wrath would be, right? Yeah. So like if we think about wrath, like, you know, if somebody shows wrath to somebody else, that's not
0: God's wrath. Not right. So yeah actually it's called violence sure yeah yeah i think um we we it's it's actually good that god hates sin because um sin is worthy of being hated it's awful like and, and but then we always struggle when it's like my sin well my sin's not that bad god shouldn't be wrathful towards me right um but sin is awful sin is terrible um and I always, I always ask the question, well, what would it be like if God didn't hate sin? What would it be like to serve a God like that, who's just kind of like, meh, about sin? We would go, well, is he actually holy? Like, is he just? Is he righteous? Um, is he good? Is he wise? Is he perfect? Um, because if God is just kind of ambivalent about sin and goes, well, it doesn't really matter, then I, I think we would call into question his other attributes, right? So the fact that God uh, intensely hates sin because it's just awful, I actually think it's a good thing. It shows that he is just and that he is holy. Um, And even God's wrath, it, it demonstrates his grace and mercy and love because he dealt with his own wrath on the cross, right? That Jesus comes and on the cross... Um, the wrath of God is poured out onto Jesus instead of onto us. So it's like, it's like God, we, we introduced the sin problem, and then God, so he hates sin, and yet rather than just wiping everybody out, which he could have, and be totally just to be like, okay, well, fine, destruction. Rather than that, he actually sends his son to fix the problem and to take the wrath on himself. Like it's, God's wrath um, is actually, it's been dealt with at the cross, right? So we don't have to live under, right? That's what First um, Thessalonians says, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. So when we read about the end of the world and when God judges everyone, we don't have to go, ooh, I hope that I've done enough to escape God's wrath. No, Jesus is the one that saves us from the wrath to come. If your faith is in him, you don't have to worry about God's wrath at the end.
1: I feel like a God who wasn't wrathful about sin means that there would be no sin because sin is the disobedience of God but if you don't care about what the person is doing you're not exactly disobeying Mm -hmm. the person Mm -hmm. so technically a God who wasn't wrathful about sin was a God who is kind of on the same level as you are,
3: which therefore is not a god. Hmm. Uh mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it because wrath provoked? Would you say that in one
0: verse that God's wrath is provoked? It's not His nature. It's His response to evil. Um. Yeah. In Deuteronomy, He says, um. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. So, yeah, it was because of their sinfulness that it was kind (laughs) of like, they're provoking God, um, to wrath because of their sin, right? Um, Even in Romans 1, we talked about that on Sunday, like an aspect of God's wrath is him just giving us what we want, which is sin and terrible things. Because uh, uh, several times in Romans 1, it says, well, God gave them up. God, uh, and, and at the beginning, it says the wrath of God is revealed. And then over and over, it says God gave them up. So if you want to view uh, a view of God's wrath, is, it's like God um, kind of takes his hands off and says, fine, if you guys want to live like this, I'm going to let you live like that. And that's, that's an aspect of God's wrath that that he allows us to go into more and more and more and more and more sinfulness, um, which is never good. (laughs) Well, to end, um, just really quickly, like I said, I'm going to put my notes on the website because it'll cover the goodness, patience, perfection, wisdom. But really quickly, the unity part is really important, and this will take two minutes, because when we talk about all of these attributes, and then last week, God's omniscience, his uh, omnipotence, his omnipresent, when we think about all the attributes of God, it's not as if God is divided into different parts, right? This part of God is wrathful. This part of God is loving. one attribute of God is not more important than the other um every attribute is completely true of God right so it's not as if well okay God is wrathful he hates sin but that's like this much of who he is and God's love is is this much um when we talk about God's unity it's that all of his attributes um each one is completely true of God um to maybe help you understand, one guy was like, um, I'm going to draw a couple pictures. He said, sometimes we view God as maybe being like made up of his attributes. I don't mean like literally that he's a bunch of circles, but, <laughs> but right, we have God's love, his grace, his mercy, on and on and on, that he's just kind of like the sum total of all of these different attributes. Um, and I think that's, that's a misleading way because... Um, God is, is perfect in all of his attributes. Like he's, that's why scripture can say God is love. Um, and it's not as if um, his, his attributes are something, um, outs, it's not like God is here, and then all of his, he's like this, and he's this, and he's that, and he's, they're all different parts of God. Um, one theologian, Wayne Grudem, he said that the best way to think of it um, is that, God's whole being includes all of his attributes. He is entirely loving. He is entirely merciful. He is entirely just, and on and on for all of his attributes. Um, and so he drew a picture that sometimes pictures are helpful. Um, he kind of said, when you, when you think about God, if right, this is God's attributes, his character, it's, it's like, you know... Um, They're all, all of his attributes are all interconnected. They're all perfect. They're all operating at the same time. It's not as if right, God is more loving and now he's more... All of his attributes, there's unity among God. He is perfect in, in every single one of... right? How much of God is love? Well, all of him. How much of God is, is his grace? Like how much is God graceful? Well, he, he's perfectly gracious he's all of it right and so it's it's best to kind of view it as they're all of god's attributes are intertwined and connected and he's just perfect in all of them um so it's not as if some are less and some are more and um you know some outweigh the others no god is perfect in all of them does that make sense yeah any final thoughts (laughs) Bad <laughs> bad <ones>. <laughs> 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 the bad ones aren't the bad ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you think of like the fact that
3: we're made in the image of God. We mm-hmm. think of like when we become parents, as terrible as we are in comparison to Him as a parent, mm-hmm.
2: I discipline
1: my child because I love them. Yep. I get upset at their, you know, I know they can do better. So I get disappointed, but I still love them. Uh-huh. And I, my motivation is always from the good, but it might, from the outside looking in, someone might be like, wow, they're harsh. Or mm-hmm. they're, but it's, it's from that place of love that, yep. so i just thinking that he's obviously that much mm-hmm. better at all those things.
0: Totally.
1: But it makes sense in my mind when I think, of course, you can be always loving, even in wrath.
0: Yeah, like, totally. You can be yep. full of grace
1: while being, you know,
0: while being just, because yep. know, like, totally, like, all go into together. Yep, yep, yeah, exactly. Well, that was a lot, I know, <laughs> but let me pray, and then, uh, like I said, this will be, uh, we're filming it, so it'll be posted tomorrow, and I'm just going to post my notes with it, so if you are curious to go, okay, what about, and the scriptures are there too for the goodness and patience and wisdom and all that kind of stuff, but I had a feeling we wouldn't get through all of it, but that's okay.